Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, Who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, She is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in any other field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. may be seated. Thank you, Ashley. A wonderful job reading. Would you uh, now join with me in prayer as we come to God's word? Let's pray together. Father, we, as we now come to your word, we want to just put ourselves under your wings. We want to put ourselves under your care. Lord, we want to, no matter where we're at right now, no matter what state our heart's in, no matter what's happening in our life, Lord, in these next few moments, we just want to come and open our heart to you and ask you to speak. Because that's how you redeem, that's how you heal, that's how you transform, it's by the power of your word. So would you speak into our hearts, speak your word into our hearts, by the power of your spirit, that we may find hope, and that we may be uh, renewed, and changed, and enabled to live for your glory. So come and speak, and be near to your people, in Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, so I got a question for our young people here to get us started. You ready to go? Okay, because we need you to engage on this one, okay? I think you'll have a lot to say about this, but we'll see. Um, what are some of the differences between boys and girls? Is there a difference? LG, do you have one? Yeah. 
Okay, okay. Yeah, boys are rough. That's good. That's true. I can vouch for that. See that in my house. Amelia? <laughs> Do y'all hear that? That's wonderful. It's true. It's true. I so appreciate Amelia, yes. That's awesome. Yeah, girls' brains develop earlier. Maybe sometimes more in the long run even, maybe. H? Okay. You didn't have one? Okay. In the back, Atticus. Okay. That's another good one. Yes. Girls live longer because boys do dumb things. That's very good. Yes, very, very true. Yeah. Any other ideas? <laughs> yeah, Levi. Okay, they generally read more than boys. Okay, that's true. Yeah, maybe. So, you know, we could go on and on with this. The, the bottom line is there is a difference, right? Can we start there? There's a difference between boys and girls. I see it. I've been amazed at seeing it in my own home. You know, I, we've got these four boys, and then this little girl comes along, and I'm just like, what? I mean, she's just so different. I was thinking tomboy, and she's like little princess. I don't know how that happens, but boys and girls are different. Now, sometimes the ways that we think of and describe those differences tend to be kind of external things. Like, you know, boys do dumb stuff. That's often true. And they're rough. And girls maybe are a little bit more tender. And we can say those things about kind of about the externals. Maybe we could even say what they, they look like and how they tend to dress. And we can talk a lot about differences on the on external. But the fact is there is a lot of differences in the the inside and the essence of who we are in our masculinity and in our femininity. Uh, I know growing up personally for me, I did not learn a very good picture or vision for what it meant to be a man when I grew. And I often did not grow up with a very healthy picture of the value of women. It's just not a part of what I was taught, or, or at least what I can say what I learned growing up. It was, it was, it was actually a distortion in my life. That it tended to be uh, very much about externals and, and some of those kind of things that we think that boys do or men do and women do and not very much about relationship at all. So, we're, we're in a series in the book of Ruth where we're talking about, we're seeing this story I mean, that's what Ruth is. It's a story. It's a story about how God is at work uh, behind all these kind of ordinary details in the lives of these people in ancient Israel and how God is going to bring about redemption for them, for the nation as a whole, and for literally the whole world. He's going to do all of that through these few people Making choices and living in love. That is, giving themselves away in love to the people in their domain. And it's a tremendous picture about how God is at work in the smallest minute details of how we relate and treat the people in our life. Now, it's very easy to go through life and just think, those things don't really matter. It's easy to go through life and not really see God at work 
even in all the details of our life, even in how do I treat this person that I'm encountering in my life? How do I treat this family member? How do I treat my spouse? How do I treat my neighbor? It's hard to see, wait a minute, God is intimately involved in all of those details and it is through relationships and through how I move in relationships that God brings about His purposes. It's hard to see. We often miss those ordinary realities in our life, but we see it in the book of Ruth. And what we're going to see today is particularly how God works through these two people, Ruth and Boaz, as they relate to their domain in love and particularly in their essence of femininity and masculinity. Now that might be confusing, but hopefully you'll get it as we begin to walk, walk through the passage here. So let's jump into the passage. We're in chapter 2 here. Just a little summary to bring you up because you, you have to know this kind of the story as a whole to know where we're at here. But as we looked at last week, uh, we're looking at this story of Naomi, who with her husband and her two sons fled Bethlehem. They're Israelites, but a famine was in the land. This was a very dark time in Israel's history. The leaders were extremely corrupt, and their culture was in a decline. Maybe some of us feel that way living in America now. But let me just assure you, as bad as you think it is, it does not get close to the reality of their world in this time. It was very dark times. And so they flee Israel to go to Moab, which was a uh, kind of the distant relatives of the Israelites. They did not like each other. They were foreigners. They were outside of the covenant. And while there, their two sons find wives, they marry. But then tragedy begins to hit this family very specifically. Elimelech, kind of the, the, the father and the husband of Naomi, he dies. And then their two sons die. And so Naomi is left a widow, which in this day was the most vulnerable people in all of society. They had very little uh, standing or social power in this day. And she has these two daughters-in-law who, who also are now widowed. And so God comes to Israel. He brings relief in the famine. They decide they're going to leave Moab and go back to Bethlehem. But Naomi realizes, really, my life's over. There is no hope for me of marrying again and having children. And in this day, your, your social connection, your family connection was so central to who you were and your legacy after you die. It was everything to them. And so she knows I have no sons. I have no protection. I'm heading into a dark reality in the later years of my life. And so she says to her daughters-in-law, I don't want you to have that same thing. So she tries to talk them into going back to Moab. Go back to your parents' home. You will find husbands. You will have a life. You will have children. All of those prospects are before you. And one of them agrees and Ruth refuses. And she binds herself to Naomi. In what the Hebrew, the Hebrew word that's used throughout the book is hesed. It's this one way kind of commit yourself love to another person even when you don't get anything in return. And so we, so we see a powerful picture of Hesed love in Ruth, where she says, I'm not leaving you. I don't care what it costs me. I'm going to commit and bind my life to you. I'm going back with you. I don't care what the future holds. And we saw that she could do that because she was deeply resting in the Lord's Hesed love for her. 
So that's where we pick up here. They're finally back in Bethlehem. So Naomi and Ruth, they're here. They're in Israel. One of the things to know right off the bat is that uh, Ruth is not only a widow, but she is a foreigner. Now if you were to look at the social ladder, the social structure of ancient Israel, you would have seen that you work all the way down the social ladder and at the very bottom was foreign widows. And if you want to talk about the most vulnerable that there could be, it was foreign widows. They had no protection. They were incredibly vulnerable. They had no standing, no ability to kind of take care of their world at all. But we see in this moment right off the bat in verse 2, here they are, very few prospects, but we see Ruth goes in verse 2, she goes to Naomi, she puts herself under the care of Naomi. You would think at this point like, hey, hadn't she done enough to be like, all right, Naomi, look, I'm taking over at this point, okay? I know what to do, all right? I'm going to go figure this out. But she comes to Naomi and she says, I would like to go into the field and to glean. Now, gleaning was a, it was like a, a welfare provision in ancient Israel. So if you were uh, a farmer and you had a field, and you were harvesting your field, you were not permitted to harvest the entire crop. You had to leave a certain portion so that the poor could come and they could glean in the field. They could harvest what was not taken by hand. So it was like the, the perfect welfare. It was providing protection for them, but yet they had to work to do it. It wasn't just purely a handout, but it was a provision for them. And so this was a common thing in Israel. So she knows that practice, and she says, let me go out and just find the field. Look at what what she says in verse 2. Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. Now you see there, Ruth doesn't know what's out there. She, she really doesn't, it's not like she's got any connections of like, hey, I got this person over here, I think I could do well in that field. I mean, this was a vulnerable thing to do. You didn't know if you would be treated well. You didn't know what field to go to. But what do you see Ruth doing here? It's a, it's a beautiful picture of Hesed and what love does. Love just moves her out. She's taking a risk. He said, let me just go and just see if I find favor in somebody's field. Now, she could have been like, Naomi, you need to come with me. That's an interesting thing there, that Naomi doesn't come. She doesn't go. She should have. I mean, we're left to kind of wonder, is she just sunk in self-pity? I don't know. It's It's a legitimate assumption. But Ruth doesn't say, hey, this is not fair. Hey, I shouldn't be doing this without you. And that's kind of a picture of love. Love doesn't count what's fair. Love just gets moving. Love takes a risk. And no doubt, she is doing this for Naomi. So she just goes out into a field. Now here's the cool thing about the book of Ruth, and we talked about this last week. The book of Ruth does not directly describe God entering into these individual actions in the story. But it's hinted at everywhere. And it's done in such a way, done very subtly, it's like masterful Hebrew narratives, it's done in such a way to show us she gets busy doing. People are, they're, they're living their life. They're, they're not paralyzed by fear, but they're moving out. And yet, God is showing up as they move out. And you see a beautiful picture of that here. We learn, um, 
Verse 3, so she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. And here is, I just love this little phrase. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. What is the narrator showing us here? Well, what do you know? That's kind of what the Hebrews say in there. Well, wouldn't you know that she just happens into the very place where she might be cared for. So what does he want us to see here? He wants us to see that behind the details of everyday life, God is at work. All the details. All, all the needs that we have. Now you don't always see it. Like, you know, some of us might have a tendency if we were Ruth to sit there and like, well, I'm just going to pray and look for a sign. And until I see a sign, I'm not going to go. You ever done that in your life? I've done that a whole lot. Okay, God, I'm just going to open my Bible and whatever it comes to. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. And you're like, oh, that's weird. No, I can't. Well, let's try that again. Have you ever like tried to look for a sign? And I know people who are always like, if something happens that's out of the ordinary, they're like, oh, that's God. That's got to be God. Because there can be a thinking that whenever God's at work, it's somehow like out of the ordinary. But what we see here is that God is at work behind the ordinary. And so Ruth, because she trusts in God and because she's moving in love, she just goes. She's not paralyzed. But what do I need to do here? Some of us get paralyzed in life. What job should I take? Should I move forward in this relationship? What should I do? What school should I go to? I mean, all so much of life is getting paralyzed in decisions. I think the beautiful thing that we see here is trust just moves us out and says, you know what? Whichever path I take, God's going to be there. He's going to provide. And he does that here for Ruth. Verse 4, just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. You see those, it's another little subtle hint. Just then, at just the right time. All of this comes together. Well, that must be a coincidence. That's kind of what the Hebrews say in. It's no coincidence. God is at work behind all the details of our life. And so what He calls us to do is just move in love. Just move out in love. Just say, what's that next thing to do? What's, what does love look like in that next step in my life? And let me go do it, and I'm going to trust God's going to show up. That's the picture that we see here. So she shows up, and just then, Boaz shows up. Now, we're told in verse 1, he's introduced here, it's kind of a little foreshadowing in verse 1, where it says, Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. It introduces him right off the bat, so you're left thinking, wait a minute, what's going to happen here? Because, you know, as we're following the story, they're in dire straits. How can they possibly find hope in this situation? And it kind of drops a little hint. He's from the clan of Elimelech. Now, a Hebrew reader would have known there was a provision. We're going to get into this next week. There was a provision for someone, for a widow, to be taken care of and, and married by the family of her husband. We're going to talk about that next week. So it's kind of introducing that something's coming. Redemption's coming. But we learn that Boaz is this man of standing. Now, now the, the Hebrew there is an indication that he was a man who was a leader in the community. He's a tribal leader. He's a man of wealth. 
He's a man of physician. He's probably an older man. Very well respected in the community. But someone who has a lot of social power. He has a lot of ability to do things for people. And to provide protection for people. But what we see as we walk through the story here. Is we're going to see this interaction of Boaz and Ruth. Now God set this whole thing up. And this interaction is an interaction of love. Now not romantic love. Now, if you're familiar with the story, that ends up coming. But none of that is taking place here. There's no romantic attraction here. What we see is a man and a woman who both trust God and yet are interacting appropriately in love with one another. They're showing love. This is a cross-gender relationship that comes about. And it has no romantic overtones at this point, And yet we get a picture of what does it look like to live in relationships with each other. How do we uniquely live out love. In the essence of who we are as men and women. Now let's just watch this interaction. Now in, in, this, in this interaction. Boaz and Ruth. Are just these glowing pictures. Of righteousness. Very compelling as we watch them. Let's watch. So Boaz shows up. Right off the bat. We learn that this is a man. Of faith. He shows up right off the bat in verse 4 and he greets his harvesters. These are his workers. Now, I don't know how your boss greets you or if you're a boss, how you greet your workers. But sometimes it's harsh. <laughs> sometimes it's not even seeing value in someone. Some of us feel very unseen by our boss. What does it look like to be a boss of righteousness? How should our faith impact how we treat our employees? Look at Boaz. So he arrives in Bethlehem and he greets his harvesters. The Lord be with you. He greets them not with. What have you all been doing? I see you sitting here not doing your work. Yeah, he doesn't do that. I've had bosses like that. He comes and he says the Lord be with you. This blessing over his work. You have value for me. God be with you. We're about God's business more than we're about my profit. It's kind of. The way that Boaz works here. And then they call back to him. The Lord bless you they call back. And then Boaz in verse 5. Asked the foreman of his har harvesters. Whose young woman is that? So it gives us a picture that Boaz shows up on the scene. And so he is a man. He owns fields. He owns property. He's a man who sees all of those working under his care. As a part of his charge. These are. This is an area of people who belong to his care. And he's concerned about the people that work for him. Now he would have seen his harvesters that actually work for him. But also there would have been a group of people who were the poor uh, servants who were out gleaning in the fields. So he takes an interest in them. And it's interesting. There's no reason for a man of this position to even see someone like Ruth. Like the lowest of the low. How do we treat the people who maybe are of low position in society? How do we treat those people that maybe we run into on the street or maybe we're in a restaurant and we're being served or maybe, you know, kids, you're at, you're at school and you're being served by maybe lunch ladies or, or, or you pass a janitor who, who all have dignity in their work, but sometimes in our culture we look at that and we say, ah, oh, that's not super impressive. But how do we, do we see those people? Do we acknowledge them? Do they have value? For Boaz, they do. And he sees a new person in his field who is vulnerable. 
He would have known right off. This, this is a new person, not of stature. Bethlehem's not a big place. You kind of know everybody there, kind of like Trenton. The new person, so he takes an interest. He investigates. Tell me the story here as he goes to his harvester, uh, to his foreman. And the foreman replies, she is a Moabite who came back from Moab from, with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvester. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So the foreman has been impressed by Ruth. He's been impressed by her character. He's been impressed by her work ethic. And by the way, kids, you just need to know, a part of your character is your work ethic. Are you able to work? Are you, are you able to, to stay at something whenever it's hard? It's a sign of character. And so the foreman is impressed by that. He shares that with Boaz, but also the story. Maybe Boaz has heard the story about a woman who came back from, with Naomi. And so all of that tells him something about the character of Ruth. That yes, she's vulnerable, she's a foreigner, but what courage she had to commit her life to Naomi. To be loyal to her in love in that way. And now here she is in this field. She has this incredible work ethic. And Boaz is like wow. He's drawn to that. Not in a romantic way. But just in an honoring way. So what does Boaz do? Did he just hear the story and go on about his business? I'm sure he had plenty to do. No what does he do? He involves himself. He moves towards her. He enters into the situation. And brings covering for Ruth. Look at what he says next. So Boaz said to Ruth, so he's gone to Ruth. He's addressed her directly. Would, would have been very uncommon. My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I told the men not to touch you. And Whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. What's happening here? Boaz has engaged her, has moved close, and has said, I'm going to bring covering and protection for you. I've already ordered all my men, they are not to touch you. Now, in this day, to be a vulnerable woman in this setting, she could very commonly be messed with. Because, you know, who's going to protect her? Well, nobody who's vulnerable in that way. Boaz knows that. And he brings that protection. He brings his strength. He tells the guy, if anybody touches her, they're going to mess with me. Right? What does he gain from this? Zero. He invites her, hey, come and get water from the water jars if you're thirsty. That is a sign of inviting her into the community to share the, the utensils of drinking and all of that thing. Hey, you're welcome here. You're a part of this. And he also comes, he doesn't just say, hey, you're, you're free to... To work here as long as you want to. He actually says, listen, don't go anywhere else. Why? Because I know you'll be safe here. He has come to bring protection and covering for her. Again, what does he gain? Just a man gauging out of his essence of bringing covering and a particular concern for the vulnerable. Now let's look at how Ruth responds to him. Verse 10, at this she bows her face down to the ground and she exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? What do we see there? One, humility. Also, we see her openness. 
Ruth has been through a lot. She's a tough girl. She's a tough woman. She has, got, she has had to go through some hard things. And yet, she's open. You know, we might, might imagine her saying, look, I got this, okay? Thank you. I appreciate it. I don't need any of that stuff. I'm just going to keep working here. Appreciate it. But she, she opens herself. She receives his care. She responds. Ruth is open. Tremendous picture. Boaz, uh, and, and she asked this question, why? What? She's blown away by Boaz and said, why would you notice me? I, no, there's nothing about my position that would draw your care. And so, verse 11, Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland, you came to live with the people you did not know. I know your character. I know about you. You're famous, Ruth. Everybody's heard about your character. Everybody's been impacted by the, the strength and the courage of who you are in your being, in your heart. And then in verse 12, he brings a blessing over her. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What a description of her faith. What, what, what grabs Boaz about this woman? Again, not romantically, but just relating as a brother. He is impacted by, one, her character and her hesed love, but also her faith. I love that description. I see you, you, you have come to take refuge under the wings of the Lord. She is a woman who has put herself under the care of the Lord which is submission. Beautiful picture, and he's impacted by this. And now look in verse 13 at her response. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. Again, we see her responding to him. We see her open to him. We see her saying, okay, okay, I'm going to come under your care. You're offering care to me. I'm going to put myself under your care. What an interaction here. And what, what jumps out here? And here's, here's what I want to drill down on and really want us to see. We see a powerful picture of two people living in love uniquely in the essence of their gender. We see them relating uniquely in the essence of their femininity and their masculinity. And it is a beautiful picture. And it's what we are to see in the book of Ruth. We actually see this in many places in Scripture. So I realize, you know, talking about gender, you know, this is tricky, right? Because this is a hot thing in our world right now. Our world. If, if you haven't had your head in the sand, you know that our world is incredibly messed up right now with respect to gender. There's incredible confusion whenever it comes to gender. And many people are suffering under this. You know, I don't know if you've filled out a job application late, lately or if you've filled out a census application or whatever. You'll know you come to that thing and the part where it comes to list your gender, there's like 15 different options. What is going on in our world? You know, when, when we talk about gender, we say, you know, this is something, this is the basic understanding our, our world has right now in our culture as it comes to gender. That gender is something that you choose. 
It's, it's, it's something that, that, you, uh, that you put on yourself, and it, it, it can even be fluid, you know. We, we, you hear terms like gender neutral or gender fluid or, you know, like this way, this, this day I might be more like a man, and this day I might be more like a girl, and, or I might be neither. I might be a total other option. And there's just so many crazy things out there right now when it relates to gender. And even beyond that, you know, think about the commercials, of the, the ways that this is starting to come into the commercials that we see. You know, we've we got to be really discerning as we're out in the world. And just see the messages that are coming at us. I mean, last night we're watching a football game, you know, and I don't know how many commercials come through that are pushing this kind of message about the distortion of gender. I mean, there was, there was one about, you know, kind of a, well, there's a number of them showing, you know, two men as couples, you know, and, and different ways of just uh, uh, people just looking distorted in their gender. And, and I was putting the boys down that night, and one of my boys said, hey, Dad, what, what was that about? That was very strange. And it just hit me. I'm like, this is coming for Oh, it's coming for us, but it's coming for our children. And you know, it's not an option to stick your head in the sand. And it's not an option to just say, hey, guess what? Boys do this, girls do that. We've got to have a, dip, a deeper, more robust understanding of what does it mean to be a woman in the glory of which God created you? What does it mean to be a man? What what? What does he intend for me to live out of that? Because listen, it matters. You know, one of the problems is that in the church, we've not done so good with this. In fact, we've gone the opposite direction. Right? There's, a, there's another distortion of gender. And it's happened in the church. And it's happened in, so often the focus has been, men should do this, women should do this. It focuses on externals. You know, things like, you know, men should, uh, women shouldn't dress this way. You know, I, I hear all the time in Dade County that, that women have been taught in churches that they cannot wear pants. And I'm like, where do you get that? It's nowhere in the Bible. But where we get that is that we're trying to some way define gender. And so we say, well, it must be about the clothes that you wear. Or it must be about where you work. You know, the church will, uh, will say things like, you know, a, a woman can't work outside the home. It's like, well, what? I, it's not about the externals. It's not about what you're not allowed to do. So often the church gets into that. You know, I've been listening to a, a podcast recently called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Anybody read this? It's, I love podcasts, you know. This one's really good, but it's very disturbing. But it's about a mega church in Seattle, Washington called Mars Hill. And uh, it was led by this really famous celebrity preacher named Mark Driscoll. And it kind of exploded and it was huge, like 15,000 people. And it was all over, you know. Um, you know and, and, and it was huge. And then it just all collapsed. Like the, the, the pastor was fired. Basically, not because he did any of those things that we normally think pastors do whenever they were fired. It was just because he was brutally mean. I think it's a good thing you can get fired for being mean. as a pastor. But 
the podcast is kind of getting into the world of this church and what was happening. And one of the central features was an enormous distortion whenever it comes to gender. I mean, like, just this kind of vision of masculinity that's like tough guy masculinity. That, that what it means is to, you know, be violent and to be harsh and all of this stuff. And for what it means to be a woman is that, you know, you're at home or you're providing for your husband's desires and all of this stuff. And it's an incredible distortion. Now, some of us have been in churches like that. Some of us have been brutalized in churches that were misogynistic and that treated women poorly or sidelined them. And those are, those are two extremes that we're talking about here. So what we got to get at, and this really matters is, well, what does God call us to be? What is the essence of our femininity and masculinity? And I think it comes from the essence is not in necessarily what we do, but in how we relate in relationship. In other words, to be masculine means I relate in a particular way to the people in my world. To be feminine means I relate in a particular way to the people that God has put in my world. I relate in love in a particularly feminine way. Now we see this idea of gender Right at the very beginning of the Bible. Whenever God says that we as human beings, we are the image of God. And then Moses says in the passage, male and female, he created them in the image of God. So what does that mean? It means that we are fundamentally as human beings called to reveal God. That's what an image does. It reveals something about God. But he says there that it is in our masculinity and in our femininity that we reveal God. Gender is tied to the image of God. And so what that means is that we are equally the image of God. A man is no more the image of God than a woman. But what it means is that we uniquely reveal something about God that the other gender does not, by essence and emphasis. So what is that? How does a man reveal God? A man reveals who God is, who is world into his domain, as he engages in relationship, as he enters, as he pursues, as he provides covering and security. We see that in Boaz. He just jumps off the page. How he moves in, he takes responsibility, he sees someone in need, and he comes in gently, and he invites them into his care, and he brings that protection. He uses his words to offer life. He enters in. He engages. And how does a woman uniquely reveal who God is? A woman uniquely reveals the glory of God in her beauty. Not just outward beauty, but in the beauty of who you are. Your character. Women uniquely do this. That, you know, this is God. God is beautiful. In the essence of who He is. And God wants to be seen. He wants to invite us into Himself. He wants us, He is open, He opens Himself to us, invites us to behold His beauty. Uniquely, a woman reveals God in this way. As she opens her heart, as she invites the people in her domain into rest, as she reveals something of the very beauty of God and His character and who He is, she is uniquely 
feminine when she does that. We see that in Ruth. You know, we see that in her submission. You know, submission, I get it, is a terribly dirty word in our culture. And it's been terribly abused. Submission is not weakness. Submission requires tremendous strength and courage. Submission is portrayed in the very person of Jesus. As he submits himself to the Father. It is incredible courage and strength. But what is submission? Submission is putting yourself under the care of another. And we see that with Ruth. She puts herself under Naomi's care. She didn't have to be very simple to say, listen, you're not getting us anywhere. I'm going to drive the ship here. She didn't do that. She puts herself under the care of Boaz. She could have said, listen, I don't need a man's help. I've got this. If it's okay, I'll glean here, but I don't need much else. She opens herself. She puts herself under his care. Reveals God's beauty. You know, Boaz is just, he's drawn to who she is, her character, her heart. She's open. She is affected by the people in her life. And uniquely in this way, we see the beauty of her femininity. Now let me just say this. This isn't in our nature. This is, it doesn't come naturally for us to relate in this way. And the reason is because of what happened in Genesis 3. We see that whenever the fall took place in Genesis 3, uniquely there, we were impacted in the way that we relate. In the way that we enter. And so men struggle to engage in this. I mean, the tendency for men because of the fall is to withdraw in relationship. Because relationship is messy. You can't control it. Right? Men, men deeply want to feel adequate. Like they can impact their world. And so those areas where we're not sure if we have what it takes to come through, a man's going to avoid it. A man's going to withdraw from that. And it's usually in relationship. Relationship's messy. It's mysterious. It's scary. And so men have a tendency to withdraw from relationship and rather to engage in those areas that make us feel competent and strong. Right? Like work. We come alive in our work and yet be flat in our marriages. We can come alive in our hobbies. Right? In our, in our sports or in our hunting. And those areas that make us feel competent. We can enter in with strength. But yet in those areas of relationship. We can avoid and, and step back from responsibility. I feel it so deeply in my heart. You know, I read something just the other day in this book, it was just talking about this phenomenon, and it was a study by uh, a guy named Philip Zimbardo, and he did a study uh, on the demise of guys, is what he calls it, but it's the crisis of masculinity in Western culture, and he says that he has concluded in all of his research, he's a sociologist, that the average guy spends 10,000 hours playing video games by age 21. That's stunning. Now, does that mean it's a sin to play a video game? No. But it shows us something. Why are young men giving so much of themselves to video games? Because so often your world feels a lot more uncontrollable. Right? Why, why are men so uniquely grabbed by pornography? I mean, it's absolute epidemic in our culture. Why is that? Because, you know, pornography is like tailor-made by the evil one to steal the heart of a man. Because it is the opportunity to feel like, 
It's a mirage. It's an illusion. But to feel like you are affecting your world. And yet there's no cost. There's no relationship. There's no cost to you. There's no responsibility. And so yet it's this, it's this promise to affect my world without any cost. It's tailor-made. It's a unique struggle for men. And for women, the tendency, the tendency can be to control in relation. I mean, most deeply women, because you're created to be seen for your beauty, the beauty of who you are to be beheld in the relationships of your life, for that connection and the relationships in your life, but so often in a broken world, that is rejected. It is a terrible, deep fear for women to feel invisible in their world. And so, so often a woman, a woman will experience this, the pain of invisibility, and begin to shut down and control her world in order to get what she's longing for. A very deep struggle to feel like that in the realities of your life, that if I don't step in and take this, it's not going to happen. Like, my husband's not going to do it. The people in my life are not going to do it. So I've got to step in and take and, 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 and take control in this area. It's a deep struggle uniquely for women. You know, I've used all of our time. You know, this is one of those where I'm like, man, we're going to have great discussion over this area. And I look up and it's 12 o'clock. You know, I think this is something we really got to talk about. We're going to see it in next week's passage, okay? And I realize that this might be a lot real new to a lot of us. But I think the question is, how do we begin to relate in a way that gives ourselves away uniquely in our femininity, in our masculinity? And I think it's only in the power of the gospel. It's only as we're experiencing the pursuit of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, the covering of Jesus, that we're able to move into those places, guys, that is hard and is scary. Women, to begin to open yourself in areas of your life, you're scared. You're shut down. It comes in the power of the gospel as we behold the beauty of Jesus. So let me close there and pray for us. And you got to sit on it this week, and we'll come back and talk about it more next week. And if I've offended you and got it wrong, you can reach out and tell me. Okay, let me pray. Father, this is, uh, this is uniquely a core area of brokenness and struggle in my life and in many of our lives. Lord, we long to love in a way that brings life into our domain, that brings healing to the relationships in our life. And I just pray that You would be at work in our hearts through the power of the Gospel to be able to move and relate in such a way that brings life. Would you come and be our guide? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.